Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit amazon.com slash prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Where are you? I am in Belfast. I am in um, East Belfast, sitting in my house. Nice sunny day outside. And how long is it since you last left your house? <laughs> oh, it's a it's a long time. Let let me think. It's probably probably a couple of days since I, since I last left my house. Um, went went for a walk in the park a couple of days ago. It was very nice, but I don't feel the need to go out again for another couple of days. That did me. That was fine. How refreshing to hear somebody who uh, is is quite happy staying indoors. Several of our listeners keep telling me they they can't wait to go outside. I think, well, how have you become backlisted listeners? It doesn't seem <laughs> <laughs> strange, people. When do you get all your reading done? <laughs> uh, David Keenan, I know where you are, but tell everyone else where you are. I'm in Glasgow, kind of in the west end of Glasgow, and I'm in my uh, writing room which is a nice little view over to Glasgow University. Your writing room is very impressive. Yeah. It is it is my dream writing room. I mean, it's taking a long time to put together. I mean, it's wall, it's shelved on all sides, and so it's books on all the walls, which is always my dream situation. I mean, my father actually made all the bookshelves. We had no idea what we were doing, so they're all squinty. They all go at like really weird zigzags and angles, but it's so amazing. I mean, you could never get a bookcase quite as beautiful as that. So, yeah, I love this room. When we had Val McDermott on a couple of weeks ago, we did nearly 20 minutes on bookshelves with her. <laughs> Easy. I just tweeted a photo of uh, Clarice Lispector in her study at home. She's significantly more glamorous than I am in front of my bookshelves. <laughs> yeah. I don't feel she went out much, though. Did you get? I get that strong vibe that she kind of. <laughs> <laughs> she invented lockdown. Yeah. Um, should we get going? Well, why don't we? Let's kick off. Hello, and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in Rio de Janeiro in the early 70s in a flat overlooking the sea. It's very early in the morning, and a cool breeze brings us the musky scent of the night jessamine flowers as we watch a woman seated at a desk writing. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And today we're joined by two guests. Hello, Wendy Erskine and David Keenan. 
Hi. Hi there. Excellent. Wendy Erskine's first short story collection, <laughs> Sweet Home, was published by Stinging Fly in 2018 and Picador in 2019. And her next one will be out in early 2022. Are you in a position to reveal the title of your forthcoming book or would you prefer not to, Wendy? <laughs> Dance Move. It's going to be called Dance Move. Dance Move. I like it. Yeah. You like it? <laughs> I don't like dance moves, but I do like the title. Thank you very much. We thought about dance moves and then I thought it was very, it felt very Peter Kay or something or rather, you know, Dance Moves Tour 2014 or whatever. So, uh, Drop the S. Yeah. But you're a connoisseur of dance moves. I know this from your Twitter feed, particularly that 70s disco stuff. It's just. Yeah, but only in my kitchen because I never go out. Even even before lockdown, I never went out. It was just me. Just just me <laughs> dancing, dancing alone in my kitchen. Yeah. That's, that's only a little bit of an exaggeration. Clarice would have been right with you. I was going, I'm amazed you like the work of Clarice Inspector. <laughs> We're also joined today by David Keenan. He's the author of four novels that we know of. The cult classic, This Is Memorial Device, For the Good Times, which won the Gordon Byrne Prize, The Towers, The Fields, The Transmitters, and I've never said this word out loud. Can you say it for me? It's Exabeth. Exabeth, thank you so much. And his fifth novel, Monument Maker, which I am reliably informed is quite long, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is a genuine monolith. It's about um, it's a uh, quarter of a million words. Wow! <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> well, that will be published in uh, several volumes by White Rabbit Books in August this year. Amazing! And David has been on Backlisted before. He joined us on along with Beth and Roberts to talk about Peter Guralnik's two volumes of biography about Elvis Presley and we had such a great time oh, yeah. on that show where we, we, we're so uh, pleased to see you again David thanks for coming in and doing this. Thank you. Yeah and uh, one of the reasons we're pleased is that the book that David and Wendy have chosen to talk about is Agua Viva by the enigmatic Brazilian novelist Clarice Lispector first published in 1973 and it was immediately held as a masterpiece and released in a new English translation from the Portuguese by Stefan Tobler uh, in 2012 and published first by New Directions and then in Penguin Modern Classics in 2014. But before we enter the ripe garden of Lispector's prose, of her thoughts that stretch beyond thought, Andy, um, why don't you ask me the familiar question? <laughs> John, what have you been reading this week? I have been reading this week a, a I think, completely wonderful, unclassifiable book. Um, a, a kind of a meditation um, on on um, on looking, seeing, and drawing by the American uh, musician and artist Peter Blegvad. Um, Peter Blegvad, you might know if you know his music. He was a founder of the uh, avant-garde pop band um, Snap Happy. It's fair to say that you know uh, would say that Snap Happy is a perhaps a yeah, you've got to like you've got to like them to like them. Doug McCrouse's uh, vocal style is uh, idiosyncratic to say the least. They're great. Slap happy, Henry Cow. But we love them. All those early Virgin acts, right? Yeah. But he's also for a long time he wrote uh, he did a, 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 a comic strip called Leviathan, a sort of philosophical comic strip called Leviathan. And I would say that this beautiful book, um, which is called Imagine, Observe, Remember, is 
I mean, it's it's more closely connected, I guess, to the comic strip than to the to the music. What it is is in in 1975, he was an illustrator looking for a story to illustrate something with a beginning, middle, and an end. And imagine, observe, remember is what he came up with. So it was a conce- conceived as a way of thinking about illustration. So he wanted to compare the way things actually appear with the way he pictured them in his memory. So he writes, I wanted to learn from my mistakes so that I might draw things with more confidence or with greater veracity thereafter. The first drawings I did for the project were of familiar objects depicted twice, first remembered, then observed. There are basically lots of triplets of things observed and then remembered, but then he adds, as he says, I realised that there were things I'd previously neither looked at nor seen and so could not remember, but which I could nonetheless imagine. Um, And then he gives examples. Then I realised there were things I had seen and could therefore remember, which I could nonetheless imagine differently. Even a slight variation was enough to make the object new to me and make it somehow mine. So then he shows a picture of some lightning observed that he's drawn and lightning imagined. The lightning imagined is all in geometric shapes rather than uh, kind of... He goes on, Proust viewed memory as a form of stereoscopic consciousness in which an object remembered converges with the same object observed in the present to produce a single heightened reality in the mind. I felt this reality could be heightened further by adding a third eye to the binocular stereoscopic model and including the object imagined in the mix. Thus, I began to triangulate my studies to compare and contrast the three modes we used to see, imagine, observe and remember. So this book is just full of triplets, of objects, of meditations of objects, on meditations on memory, on meditations on on how to uh, on, on how memory changes and uh, develops things. There's a, a fantastic encyclopedia in the middle of it where he's he's illustrated uh, all the L's from a particular encyclopedia in his tripartite structure. It's the most visually rich, beautifully produced book I've looked at in ages. <laughs> you don't have to take his word um, for it, everybody. Cause, <laughs> cause, cause I know, I know. It's a visual. I'm trying to sell a visual gag. That's, but it's uh, published by Uniform Books. Peter Blegvad, Imagine, Observe, Remember. If you've ever tried to sketch anything, um, if you've ever been interested in in uh, in the relationship between the eye and the mind, the imagination and reality. This book is is it it should it's it's a Christmas a Christmas gift. I'm, I'm going to add some fun facts about Peter Blegvad because you told me we were doing Peter Go. Blegvad. So Peter Blegvad is the president of the London Institute of Pataphysics, the uh, genius branch of science founded by uh, Alfred Jarry in the 19th century. And uh, did you know, John, that Buenos Aires was the first city in the Western Hemisphere to have a pataphysical institute? In the 1950s, London didn't get one for many decades. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me. But I have to ask, Andy, what have you been reading well, this week? I'm pleased you asked me. I'm going to take, I'm take a circuitous route into this one. Um, <laughs> so when I found out we were doing Clarice Lispector on this episode, uh, I thought she is the first Brazilian author that we've done on Backlisted. Um, I wonder if we've got any listeners in Brazil <laughs> to whom this will particularly appeal. So what I did was I went on, I hopped onto Apple Podcasts in Brazil, and sure enough, there there was one review from a listener to Backlisted in Brazil called Andy Alistair. Hello, Andy, if you're listening. Uh, 
And this is what his his review of that listed said in Brazil. Easily the best podcast around by men and women who love books and the fall. (laughs) 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 When they discussed Derek Raymond and brought up Gallon Drunk, I almost fainted. (laughs) Highly recommended five stars. Oh, we're there. We've done it. Now, putting aside the issue that it must be a lonely life being Brazil's own gallon drunk fan. (laughs) (laughs) And and the Alistair raised a very interesting point in his review, apart apart from the five stars. He uses the phrase men and women who love books and the fall. Because what I've been reading this week is a new book by men and women who love books and the fall for me and those who love books and the fall. Those, that is the Venn diagram I want to talk about, books and the fall. And so this is being published by Faber and Faber. It's called Excavate, the wonderful and frightening word of the fall. It's been, uh, it's like 400 pages. Uh, it's like an insane hardback fanzine of found items from one of Mark E. Smith's carrier bags and and uh, and essays by a really fascinating uh, variety of people, many of whom are women, edited by Bob Stanley and Tessa Norton, and c- contributions from uh, Adele Stripe, Sean Pattenden, Elaine Harwood, plus uh, of uh, uh, people like Ian Penman and uh, Mark Fisher. The Fall, of course, a group who have a blokish reputation, which is almost entirely unfair given the number of women who have played an important role in that group, from Una Baines at the beginning, through Kay Carroll, their manager, through to Bricks in the 80s, Julian Nagel, Eleni Pulu, towards the end of the group. There is also an all-female fall karaoke band called The Fallen Women, which I don't know if any of you have seen, but you can put your name in to take the uh, MES role uh, while backed up by The Fallen Women. Um, So, you know... The group's fan base, characterised by Mark in one of his songs as the League of Bald-Headed Men, actually <laughs> actually does accommodate um, many women. And one of the things that Tessa writes in this book, which I think is really, really brilliant, she talks about the role that Mark played in relation to the group's reputation over very many years. And uh, she says this, What we're describing when we talk about the fall is a universe, a web of reference points that creates its own popular culture. Mark E. Smith was his own classroom. He led its curriculum less as a formal teacher than as a paperback shaman whose teachings you might stumble upon. The intellectual energy that cohered around him was like an electrical storm, unmarshaled by the educational establishment. He became a transmitter. Unlike the establishment's classrooms and structures, the web of knowledge that cohered around the fall was the entire point. Smith's knowledge was characterised by his relentless curiosity and pursuit of intellectual and creative freedom. And it's under these conditions that the fall became a school. This secret school, concealed within post-punk rock orthodoxy, like a battered Arthur Macken or M.R. James or H.P. Lovecraft paperback, inside a manila folder from an office stationery cupboard, taught a lot of us. And for everyone who was hypnotised in that pre-dream state in a darkened room under the blankets via this transmitter, transmitting, 
the teachings will continue to underpin a lot of what we will have to say long after the school has burnt down. And this whole book is like the most wonderful, unashamedly intellectual, pretentious, ridiculous, exciting hymn to this incredible group that is more than a group, it's a thing. And like on Backlisted, all the best Backlisted things we ever talk about, like today's subject, Clarice Lispector, you either get it or you don't. (laughs) And it's not for everyone. (laughs) Not everything is for everyone. But if you can tune in, there's a universe in it. And somebody replied to me on Twitter when I retweeted that uh, Brazil review. For, for men and women who love books and the fall. But what if I like books, but I don't like the fall? And I just says, you're out in the cold. <laughs> <laughs> Do all members of Pete the Panel gathered around this table like the fall? Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, you don't have to ask me, do you? Well, that's lucky because there's a quiz coming up later. Oh, God. We'll be back in just a sec. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. We've arrived. We touched down in uh, Brazil. (laughs) And uh, I'm going to ask Mitchinson before I turn to our guests. Had you ever read Clarice Lispector before? I had not read Clarice Lispector before. I'd always wanted to. Um, Like most people who are interested even remotely in world literature, she was somebody who was there. Her, I mean, she's one of the most physically memorable kind of iconic writer, women writers of the 20th century. Um, and I guess this will come out in the podcast. Quite difficult to, quite difficult to find a, a, an easy way of, of, of saying, you know, what her work is, is about or like. 
Um, but I, I guess it's, you know, I was always, she was one of those, one of those writers who I always thought at some point I would get to. And I'd heard her talked about in hushed, impassioned tones by other people I, I admired. So it's been a fantastic excuse to, to read quite a lot in the last two weeks. I've done nothing for the last fortnight but read books by Clarice Lispector and my head will never be the same again. So thank you, uh, Wendy <laughs> and David. I think this is probably the most abstract, superficially abstract book that we've ever talked about on Backlisted. And I, you know, there's method to my madness about talking about the fall and comparing to than to Clarice Lispector. There is a degree to which initially I found this uh, pretty tough. But the more I read and the more I let it flow over me, the more I began to feel the shape of it, its uniqueness. There's very little precedent for her. And I can't think of many people who followed in her wake. So it's a very particular psychedelic experience, I think. So, Wendy, can I ask you mm -hmm. first, when did you first read Clarice Lispector and what is it about her work that you find so interesting? I first came into contact with Clarice Lispector. It would be because I actually work in a school. You were saying there, Andy, about Marky Smith sort of educating beyond the sort of established classroom structures, in a sense, I'm I'm working within those established classroom structures, trying to subvert from within, I suppose you would say, a little. Um, and I thought, how am I going to get people interested in um, reading? And one of the things I thought, um, what will attract these people is if they see pictures of deeply attractive writers up around the place, that <laughs> might well make them want to uh, want to read. And so obviously, um, number one on my list was Mr. David Keenan. So I, I printed many pictures of David um, from, yeah, yeah. you know, the internet, stuck stuck them up on, you know, corridors and so on. But, you know, what, what I did was I had pictures of various different people, Chekhov, um, Michael Chabon, um, Albert Camus, they all thought was absolutely gorgeous. And obviously, Clarice Lispector, that beautiful photograph of her in front of a typewriter, when she looks absolutely magnificent and she's smoking. And I, I, that was one of the pictures that I put up. So it was initially this deep, deeply shallow, deeply superficial. Um, but that was my um, initial um, meeting with, with, with her. After that, I read um, some of the short stories, which I adored. And I've actually, I, I, read the, I read the first novel, I read the last novel, but to be honest, I only read um, Agua Viva after I'd heard David talk about it and he'd said it was almost like a biblical text to him. Yeah, and I thought it was absolutely most most wonderful thing. And as you say, possibly not something that is for everyone. David, you were very keen that we do Agua Viva on this podcast rather than any of Lispector's other books what is it about well we'll get into her her life story uh and her career uh, in a minute but I want to I want to get into what it is about this particular book that 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 means so much to you it's the absolute apex of what Clarice is uh attempting to do across all of her books and I would argue that it is the least difficult of her books in a way 
because and it made me down this translation, which is something we can get to. But Agua Viva, it has the most incredible flow. Now, what does she want to do with Agua Viva? One of the things that's a, an easy way to orientate yourself is it was it was sort of cannibalized from two other texts called Beyond Thought and Loud Object, which are two of the greatest book titles I've ever heard. And we're back into the fall almost. <laughs> loud with that. Object. Loud Object. <laughs> Best book title. But what yeah. she's trying to do, at one point in the book, she says she says this. She says the word is, is the only word you can trust. So then you start to realise that what Clarissa is trying to do with Agua Viva is she is trying to dig so deeply into the moment, into the experience yeah. of the moment with language till you actually come to a precipice and you gasp because you realise you're standing on the very precipice of language itself and that somehow Clarice has used language to present the unsayable, mm. to make mm. you unknow rather than know. And it is an ecstatic experience to me. It is no longer, you're not dealing with a cerebral, difficult book, you're dealing with an experience. I know you're a big fan, as as we are here, of. Uh, Malcolm Larry and of, of Under the Volcano. And certainly with Agua Viva, though it's a much shorter book, there is a sense that each reading, as with Under the Volcano, each reading is prep for the next reading, right? So the first, I mean, I've read it twice, and uh, the second reading was uh, um, extremely useful because you can see all these shapes and structures which which aren't visible the first time you go through it, Right. Yes, um, the more there is no bottom to it. It is fathomless. It is not a text that can be solved, which is why I think it's a magical text that sort of stays alive. But another way, it's very simple. The person who narrates it is a painter, and I think that is really, really key. Yeah. Exactly, and at, some, at one point I can't remember what she talks about in the painting, but it's something very simple. She says something like a painting of an egg or perhaps a painting of an orange. She said, a painting of an egg presents an egg. And in a way, this is what she's trying to do with her book and her language, mm -hmm. to present an egg as an egg. So it may seem esoteric when you first get involved in it, but actually it's, it's a very, it's an episode just to, to sort of present things as they are, with almost no comment, if, if that's possible, to let things arise and then disappear, which mirrors how how consciousness works, but also how books are written. Because another thing about Agua Viva is you're with Clarissa as she writes the book because you feel like you're in no time except the present time of Clarissa's own experience, which seems to run back to prehistoric times, to caves and to thonic sort of realities and to potential futures as well. But you're in this no time and it is the time of the creation of the novel. And Clarice is alternatively ecstatic about that feeling and terrified. Yeah, there's something vertiginous about it, yes. isn't there? Something recurringly vertiginous yes. that every sentence is is potentially peeking over, falling over into oblivion and pulling back and leaning out and pulling back. You're, you're, that's the precipice. You're on the precipice of language and you feel that. You feel as if you're, you feel that sort of, yeah, vertigo. Absolutely. <laughs> I've just had a, a message from our producer saying, "What is book about?" Question uh, <laughs> mark. We, we, I will read well, the blurb. Good, or John, it, have you got the blurb there? Do you want to read the blurb? I'll read the blurb. It's the one from the Penguin Classics edition. 
and it's quite amusing. Um, rarely has it been more of a challenge, I would say, than to say what a book is about. But I, I also am totally with David when he says, I think it's, um, I think in some ways it's it's the most simple, lucid book I've ever read. In Aguaviva, Clarice Lispector aims to capture the present. Her direct, confessional, and unfiltered meditations on everything from time, life and time to perfume and sleep are strange and hypnotic in their emotional power and have been a huge influence on many artists and writers, including one Brazilian musician who read it 111 times. <laughs> Despite its apparent spontaneity, this is a masterly work of art which rearranges language and plays in the gaps between reality and fiction. All clear now, Nikki? That good? <laughs> she's, re- she's reading it now. She's actually picked, she's started reading it. She's grabbed. <laughs> one Irish writer said it's, it's bloody awful. I mean, which I don't think it is, but, uh, you know, it's one of those books you could pick it up and say, what on earth? For goodness sake. Yeah, but, and therein, but therein is the is the thing. Most things are like other things. This is why I was talking about that at the beginning. Most stuff is like yeah. other stuff. This isn't like anything else. And it challenges your ability to, to rise to meet it, I think. That's how I felt about it anyway. Clarissa Respector was, um, by the end of her life, tremendously important to Brazilian culture. She was very famous, very popular. And after she died in 1977, uh, there was a television show made, a tribute to her on which the very famous Brazilian singer Maria Bethania, sister of Caetano Veloso, read to a musical backing some of the prose from Agua Viva. You can find this on YouTube. The sound is a bit scuzzy, but because of the just the cultural resonance of it, I really wanted to, us to be able to hear some of it in the original Portuguese. So here is Maria Bethania reading from Agua Viva. E eis que em breve nos separaremos. Minha verdade espantada é que eu sempre estive só de ti e não sabia. Eu agora sei, eu sou só. Eu e minha liberdade que não sei usar. Mas eu assumo a minha solidão. Sou só. Tenho que viver uma certa glória íntima e silenciosa. Guardo seu nome em segredo. Preciso de segredo para viver. Now, obviously, that's there for feel rather than meaning. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're Portuguese. Well, I hope Andy in Brazil is digging this whole thing because... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's happening for him exclusively, really. Wendy, could you um, read us a bit from Stefan Tober's translation of uh, the the book that we just heard a little bit from there, so that people can get a sense of sure. That's no problem. I'll read you a couple of I'll read a couple of paragraphs here. What I write to you is not comfortable. I don't impart confidences. Instead, I metalize myself. And I'm not comfortable for you and for me. My word bursts into the space of the day. What you will know of me is the shadow of the arrow that has hit its target. 
I shall only vainly grasp a shadow that takes up its room in space, and what matters is the dart. I construct something free of me and of you. This is my freedom that leads to death. In this instant now I am enveloped by a wandering, diffused desire for marvelling and millions of reflections of the sun and the water that runs from the faucet onto the lawn of a garden all ripe with perfumes, gardens and shadows that I invent right here and now and that are the concrete means of speaking in this my instant of life. My state is that of a garden with running water. In describing it, I try to mix words that time can make itself. What I tell you should be read quickly, like when you look. One of the reasons why I picked this this passage is because it's actually it's it's almost bossy in the sense of the direction it's given the reader about how um it should be it should be read. Um and I I kind of love that. It kind of reminds me of like sheet music that you would see like on Dante or something or other, where it's actually giving the person a steer as to how something should actually be played. So in terms of this being a difficult book, yeah, I can see how it is, but I can also see how she is giving you instructions about how you should actually um, approach this. Um, so what I tell you should be read quickly, like when you look. So this is how you do this. This is how you process this. This is not something that you need to deliberate over for absolutely, absolutely ages. Um, and if I can just jump to another place, I think even more so somewhere else we have um, this description of this text that I give you is not to be seen close up. It gains its secret, previously invisible roundness when seen from a high flying plane. There you can divine the play of islands and see the channels and seas. Right. And it's all imperatives the whole way through. She's saying this is the way to approach this. You don't need to go in. You don't need to be doing sort of like micro criticism of particular lines necessarily. Take this and read this as a whole. It's like a vibe. It's like an experience. That's what comes across for us to me here in this passage that I read. There's a sense that it's not necessarily a pleasant pastime. Writing is hard, it's grafting, and the results are almost always sort of approximate and kind of contingent. She uses this metaphor here that she metallizes herself. It's almost as if she's becoming the, the typewriter, that she's almost like some sort of conduit here. Um, and then you've got the metaphor of hitting the target, but again, she's the shadow. Mm, mm. The whole way through this book, I was reminded again and again of the poem Ariel by Sylvia Plath. You know, that whole idea of animals, lions, horses, you know, the, the sort of very the physicality mm. of it, you know, black, sweet, blood, mouthfuls. Um, so you've got that whole sense of things being really sort of contingent and so on. And then you've got this total change of tone. You've got this really effusive run-on sentence. Pace picks up. It's super immediate. You know, let's imagine this amazing garden and Again, it's really paradoxical because she's saying there um, gardens and so on and shadows and the rightness, the perfumes that I invent right here and now and that are the concrete means of speaking. Well, sort of a paradox because they're actually not concrete because she's inventing them. But it's it's through that that she's able to convey her um, to convey her meaning. And then you return to that little bit of bossiness at the end that I talked about at the beginning, which I love that she's trying to give you direction <laughs> in terms of how you read this. Just read this in all of a rush. Experience it. She's got that amazing thing where she talks about listening to music. Yeah. Where what she says is she places her hand on the edge of the record player 
and she yeah. feels the vibration. And in a sense, the prose is the vibration here, right? And David, you were talking about her relationship with the reader. Her novels or stories are often addressed to God or the devil or herself. You know, the the sense of in that constant evolving um, process of creation is a big part of any respects at book what is her relationship to the reader wendy was there saying there she's sort of saying to the reader it's you know she's there she's helping the reader is she helping the reader or does she does she not care about the reader does she want to create this thing and hope the reader comes on board i feel that it's absolute radical honesty and i feel that it's almost like blake and what she reveals in agua viva is pure process and i almost think that if we're honest with ourselves as creators as writers even as talkers right now there is no sort of lake of experience behind what's going on where these things are being formulated Words arise, what we're about to say, we say. There is not a lot of preconception. And when you get into the flow and you're writing a novel, you realise the novel tends to write itself and speaks. So what Clarice does in I Got Aviva is she opens up the creative process and she invites you to be as amazed at it as she is. But she says some key things to make you, yeah, to, to sort of orientate you to what she's sort of doing. And the musical thing is key. But at one point I think she says, music is not understood. It is heard. Heard, yeah. You know, so she, so but so there's a weird contradiction in a way. There's a sort of real transparency to this sort of prose in the one sense, and that she's exposing what she's doing. But yeah, as I've said before, she's pointing it to somewhere where language can't really go. And I think that's why I think of it as a religious text because it is language that aspires to silence. I mean, yeah. that sounds like a bad thing, but it's language that aspires to the end of language which is pure experience, which is, again, why I'm going back to I don't think the book is difficult because it is not cerebral. What's happened there is quite interesting. You talk about language. We've passed effortlessly from avant-garde to abstract to challenging to difficult, but they all mean different things. I don't think the book... Yeah, right. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying the book is difficult. I'm saying the book is relatively abstract in terms of its relationship to a more traditional novelistic structure that would be built around narrative. Narrative, I mean, there is some narrative in here. Yeah. It's, it's about consciousness, isn't it? It's a, it's, exactly. It, it's about, exactly. It's about the, 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 the transubstantiation process where it is becomes it. That's, that's what it seems to me that the whole thing is, is that through the process of writing, through the kind of summoning of words um, out of somewhere, out of imagination or wherever it is, onto the page, Something that isn't real becomes real. And there's a lovely thing she says, this is not a story because I don't know any stories like this, but all I know how to do is go along saying and doing. It is the story of instants that flee like fugitive tracks seen from the window Mm -hmm. of a train, which is this beautiful idea of it. The other thing is it's in time. The She's literally taking you into her inner inner time in this book. Two writers it reminds me of that kind of inter- intense quality you get in the in 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 uh, the book of Disquiet by Fernando Pessoa, another another Portuguese writer, where, which again is very very internal. But but also I have to say, late Beckett, you know, when language almost it's you know there's almost no body. There's almost I mean there is actually this is an incredibly sensual book, but it's that 
defining what what what's left if you take everything away other than language and there are times when you really feel that that's that's what she's doing about 25 years ago i met bagpuss creator oliver postgate hero and he was talking about writing his autobiography which he which he did publish it's called seeing things it's a very good book and i said to him well how are you oliver i'd never met him before and he said things have been much better since I stopped thinking of myself as a noun and realised I was a verb. verb. <laughs> now, <I'm laughs> which, is sort of, which is sort of close to what David was just saying, right? There, right? Lispector and Postgate. Well, I mean, we're back. What I think is interesting with Lispector is, although it's kind of it's seen as part of a sort of modernist uh, tradition, but we're back with the very basic fact of the magic of words, yeah. the transform of magic of language. And I keep thinking that there's some, almost something archaic about it. And this is why it's, a, it's another book that actually it, it, it works really well to be read out aloud. You know what I mean? Because there's something about there's there's a, there's a sort of transformative ritual to it as well, and it's like engaging with something that you're back realizing, wow, language can point you to something that isn't language, and that seems like a contradiction in terms. But when you read Curry, you realize you can you can point beyond language using language, and you, you know I mean Clarice herself compares it to an orgasm, the book to a climax. I think several times she describes it like a climax. And I experienced that book probably more like an orgasm than like reading a story. And that seems to be a much less complicated way of engaging with a book than even a narrative. Good. That's, that's a selling line if ever I heard one. I, I, I don't get that from, uh, from, from Lee Child, I've got to say. But, uh... <laughs> You know, I was thinking, yeah, you know, you can see all the sort of modernist aspect of this and, and, and so on. But what I was reminded of again and again when I was reading it was actually John Keats. And I was thinking of Keats's letters. And I was thinking about that whole idea of, you know, yes. you know, negative capability, you know, capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, Brilliant. doubts without any irritable reason, you know, reaching after fact and reason. And she specifically says that. She says, I struggle to conquer more deeply my freedom of sensations and thought with, without any utilitarian meaning. I proceed in an intuitive way and, and without seeking an idea. It To me, it seems it maps onto it absolutely perfectly. And, you know, also as well, the dimension of that, that whole idea of sensations rather than thoughts, you know. I scarcely remember counting upon any happiness. I look not for it, uh, if it be not in the present hour. And that's Keats. Um, nothing startles me beyond the moment. Brilliant. So Clarice uh, Lispector's career and reputation in the 20th century in Brazil, and I'll, I'll, I'll suggest this to David because I'm not. This is not a whimsical suggestion. There is a sort of Elvis Presley-like um, trajectory. She is a young, self-taught prodigy, defining her own vocabulary, who has a huge hit very young with her first novel, Near to the Wild Heart, which is written when she's 22 or 23, is published when she's 24, wins all sorts of prizes, is a sensation. And then she finds it hard to find her way from that point on. Like Elvis, she dies in 1977 and she's developed an addiction to medication and she's She's lost her stunning, amazing looks, which had, was built into her mythos and 
But I wonder why, Dave, she she has that remarkable fame. You know, she writes these brave books and at the same time she she has this spiraling of celebrity in her homeland and yet she's she's barely known in the UK and the US until the last decade or so. It's funny because the Elvis comparison is quite interesting because I actually think that Near to the Wild Heart is kind of like a rock and roll novel. And uh, some of the, the lines are like the best lyrics ever. Like, what does a wardrobe say? Close, mm-hmm. close, close. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a brilliant like, rockabilly hit. You know what I mean? I, I like that kind of style. I think we can't underestimate the sort of vision quest that uh, Clarissa went on and perhaps the real cost of that, which is the same yeah, as what Elvis yeah, yeah. went on in a way. I mean, Clarice didn't quite achieve the worldwide fame that, that, that Elvis did, but she was huge at the time, and she seems quite quite unadapted to that as well, I would say. Some of the books are frightening. As I said before, you, you, Clarice accompanies yeah. you through it, and I think that um, often she is also terrified at the sort of revelations of consciousness or whatever is being sort of dragged up archetypally. I think the book The Passion According to GH is a very good, example of that amazing amazing book yeah it is a terrifying book absolutely terrifying and the basic idea is uh, she basically crushes a a, a bug and and a cupboard and it sets off this this uh, sort of spiritual psychological crisis which ends in her partaking of eating part of the bug <laughs> and, uh, and and it seemed like well everything was a sacrament every sort of experience was a way of her getting closer to this thing that she couldn't speak she didn't really like to talk about her uh, her books because I suspect she was almost like Dylan in a way, 65, 66, where Dylan is doing these press conferences where he refuses to discuss the meaning of any of his songs because he is literally perplexed by his own creation and has gone beyond meaning at the same time. But there's a there's an appendix on one of the short story collections mm. it's, and it's included in the complete stories on Penguin. And it's an appendix where she talks about some of her stories and it's called The Useless Explanation. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> which is perfect. She had the accident too, a bit like Dylan, didn't she? That accident really, really. I mean, you know, she set, set fire to herself in bed when she was on painkillers, and 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 really, I mean, damaged her hand, which is a thing for a writer, right? I, I, yeah, and damaged uh, yeah. her leg and her looks. Yeah, uh huh. The truth is, it's unlikely we would be talk, talking about Clarice the Spectre were it not for the efforts of the uh, writer and Clarice's biographer Benjamin Moser, who is not single-handedly but but largely responsible for taking it upon himself to establish her in the US and Europe and the UK and um I thought it would be interesting to hear a clip talking about the challenges of getting Clarice's work out of Brazil and in front of readers both in terms of translation and her her reputation at home and how you communicate those things. People actually are in love with Clarice Lispector, and I was one of those people. And um, Clarice Lispector is a very strange writer, and she doesn't write proper Portuguese at all. Her whole syntax, her vocabulary, it's all very weird. When I published my biography in Brazil, five different... Brazilian copy editors went through the book, and they all tried to change her prose. 
because it just doesn't sound right to Brazilian. And a lot of Brazilians actually find her difficult to read. The way she rearranges her sentences is so odd, and it's really surprising, and it's, you know, it's, it's what makes her a poetic writer. Clarice has a very, very distinctive voice in Portuguese. I mean, there's no one that sounds anything remotely like her. You know, I mean, it, she, she wrote, she was a famous short story writer. A lot of her novels are very difficult, though. They're very mystical, and, and they're, they're um, kind of either you think it's the greatest thing you've ever read, which is my case, of course, um, or you don't understand any of it. You know, I mean, she's a very difficult writer sometimes. I think one of the things that Clara Suspector perhaps uh, suffers from is not one single committed translator on the on the sort of scale of say a Natasha mm. Wimmer who Roberto Bolaño has or whatever. If you look at her books, almost every single book has been translated by someone else. I think Benjamin Moser has mm-hmm. maybe done two, but every single one of them has been translated by someone else. And I think that also adds to the sort of fractured feel of her back catalogue. It was already fractured because we know she wrote a lot of these books through notes, obsessive notes on different things. They were compiled with the help of editors or friends sometimes as well. So they were already fractured. The reason that I also go back to Agua Viva is that there is feel. The language has feel. Some of the other translations feel overly fractured to me. And I feel as if Clarissa isn't perhaps quite coming through. So I don't think we're getting that full view of her apart. And this is a totally just an intuitive thing because I don't know anything about the translation. Agua Viva feels like the closest and the truest of all of her books in mm. terms of translation. Mm. I think Mosa has tried to keep an editorial eye across all these recent translations, but he does talk about, I've heard him talk about the challenge of doing that. When you're, you know, if you have a French translator, three different English translators, an Australian translator, all drawing on their own particular syntaxes and, you know, trying to get her to speak with one voice when she's an author, as you, as you suggest, who doesn't speak with one voice, because why would you? Because if you write a book when you're, you know, 22 and you don't know what you're doing and then you write one when you're 52 when you know too much about what you're doing, that's not, that's not going to be the same book. I think that's that thing, though, that Wendy, that uh, brilliant co- comparison to Keats, she she feels to me, I, I don't feel that she comes from anywhere. She feels like her own invention. You know, I'm you, as you say, you can make comparisons to other writers, whether it's, you know, uh, Kafka or, or any of those sort of uh, modernist writers, I suppose. That's brilliant. That whole that that con- connection, the sensuality, is much closer to nineteenth-century romanticism. It's really interesting. Wendy, does that feel consistent to you when you read Lispector? Do you always know you're reading Lispector, regardless of what era the book might be from? Right. Well, I would have to. I would have to be totally honest and say I haven't read absolutely everything. But what I have read is near to the Wild Heart, and to me, it is so similar in some respects. You've got that central figure who is wondering about whether the word "never" is male or female. Is thinking about you know, does the, the, the you know a dot. Um, mm. Is it does it does a dot feel its mm. own loneliness? Um, there's there's discussion as well of the self and you know, um, the self tastes 
grey and red and blue. And that sort of synesthesia that I think runs the whole way through Aguaviva, you know, you, you see that in that in that in that, yeah, yeah, in that yeah, first yeah. in that yeah. first novel. Trying to photograph perfume. Yeah, trying to yeah. photograph yeah, exactly. Trying to photograph perfume yeah. and you know, the the failure of language to express itself. I think it's all there in that first novel. And um, it just it just seems that it's kind of up. The characterization and narrative and all of these things are basically just just cut away then to the kind of pure core or whatever whenever it comes to um, Aquaviva. Um, and I also think, you know, there's, there's a bit in Aquaviva as well where strangeness is talked about. And the narrator says, you know, when I think a painting is strange, that's when it's a, a painting. When I think life is strange, that's when it begins. And, you know, when I think writing strange, that's when it's writing. So it's, a, again, that idea of the strangeness and the, the alien or whatever is something to be, you know, sort of celebrated, I suppose. <laughs> So you were talking about endings there, Wendy. Clarice the Spectre gave one TV interview several months before she died. And um, we're just going to hear the end of that interview. And I have I've presented it in a way that I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, the listeners, what she's saying while we're going along. Please go and find this interview on YouTube. It's subtitled. It's one of the most moving things I've seem for a very long time certainly in relation for uh, for authors talking on backlisted so i i very humbly hope i haven't spoilt it here <laughs> in what i've done but here is the end of the, the clarice the specter's only television interview do you ever write something only to tear it up again? I put it aside or tear... No, I tear things up. Is that reaction purely rational or more of a sudden emotion? Anger, a little bit of anger. With whom? With myself. Why, Clarice? Who knows? I'm a little tired. Do De mim mesmo. Of what? Of myself. Mas você não renasce e se renova a cada trabalho novo? But aren't you born again and refreshed with every new work? Bom, eu agora eu morri. Well, for now I'm dead. Vamos ver se eu renasço de novo. Por enquanto eu tô morta. We'll see if I can be born again. For now I'm dead. I'm speaking from my tomb. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. The whole thing is on YouTube and uh, it's extremely intense and uh, totally worth watching. Um, so, David, do you have something that you want to read, which is a particular part of this book that, that, that has uh, affected you? You know, it's a living book. Agua yeah, Viva, yeah. it's like living waters. You can't step into the same <laughs> river twice, blah, blah, blah. You literally can't. You pick this book up and something else pulls you according to what day you pull it up, what mood you're in. It's a living book. And that's why I brought up Blake. It's a book that continues to evolve and alive because Clarice, like William Blake, developed a living system. I was enslaved by no one else's which is what's profound, I think, about her whole system. You can present a couple of directions for listening and then you can go in. So two lines I'll present and then I'll present a little uh, paragraph mm. which I think kind of manifests it. So first line, 
You don't understand music. You hear it. So hear me with your whole body. Second, the word is my fourth dimension. And so, and so I realize that I want the vibrating substratum of the repeated word sung in Gregorian chant. I'm aware that I can't say everything I know. I only know when painting or pronouncing syllables blind of meaning. And if here I must use words, they must bear an almost merely bodily meaning. I'm struggling with the last vibration. To tell you of my substratum, I make a sentence of words made only from instance now. Read, therefore, my invention as pure vibration, with no meaning beyond each whistling syllable. Read this. With the passing of the centuries, I lost the secret of Egypt. When I moved in longitudes, latitudes and altitudes with the energetic action of electrons, protons and neutrons under the spell of the word and its shadow. What I wrote you here is an electronic drawing without past or future. It is simply now. That is brilliant. Mm, brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Amazing. While we've been talking about Clarice, I've been thinking a lot about the similarities between her and Mark E. Smith. Um, you know, a prodigy, an autodidact, someone who invented their own language, who stylized their delivery, who cultivated their own mythos and became a cult figure in turn, a hip priest. And the same thing goes for Mark E. Smith. So I've prepared a short quiz uh, for each of you, which we're calling Lispector versus Rector. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to give each of you a quote, and you have to tell me who said it, Clarice Lispector or Marty Smith. <laughs> this is fucking great. Uh, so, Wendy, first one to you. Who said this? Was this Clarice the Spectre or was it Mark E. Smith? Dissonance is harmonious to me. Melody sometimes wears me out. <laughs> I'm going to go with Clarice. It is Clarice. <laughs> it's page 59 of Aquaviva. Oh, well done. Oh. Very good. Yes. <laughs> Okay, next one to John Mitchinson. Whenever I say anything, I often think that the opposite is true as well. Sometimes I think truth is too obvious for people to take. Marky Smith. It is Marky Smith. Very good, but it could be Clarice, couldn't it? Come on. It could easily be. Very good. Easy, easy. One to David Keenan. Ready, Dave? Mm hmm. Is this Marky e. Smith or is it Clarice the Spectre? The generals have many enemies. Why does it concern me? Good riddance to my native country. It never did a thing for me. Marky e. Smith. It is. It's the opening verse of Marquis Cha Cha by the Fall. <laughs> 
good. Trick question, though. The generals are like that. Uh, good one. And then Tracky. finally to our producer, Nikki Birch. Who said this? <laughs> Clarice Lispector or Marky e. Smith? I won't do it in the Marky e. Smith voice, although I want to. The egg is the chicken's great sacrifice. The egg is the cross the chicken bears in life. Uh, the egg is the chicken's <laughs> unattainable dream. Uh. I'm going to go for Marky e. Smith because you've said it in his voice. I hope it's not. I'm afraid. Double bluff. Clarice yeah. Lispector yeah. From, from the egg and the chicken. Her story from Foreign Legion. And now, <laughs> fastest fingers to the buzzers, please. Whoever shouts out the answer to this one wins the whole quiz, right? Are you all ready? Is this the work of Marky e. Smith or Clarice Lispector? I am eternally grateful to my past influences but they will not free me. I am not diseased. All the people ask me how I wrote Plastic Man. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> That's right. It's Clarice Respectors, how I wrote, how I wrote Elastic Man. You had me with that delivery, though. Yeah. Very good. Very, very good. Last orders are past ten. Up of Total's turns by the fall <laughs> and some the Gregorian chant in Portuguese, as mentioned in Agua Viva. Marvellous. Yep. So now it's time for us to leave Clarice at her desk, thinking and writing. Huge thanks to Wendy and David for leading us through the caves and gardens of her inner world. To Nikki Birch for taking our separate electrical izzes and transforming them into a single harmonious it. And finally, to Unbound for squeezing the lemon on our oysters. <laughs> you can download all 135 previous episodes, plus follow links, clips, and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook, and now in sound and pictures on Instagram too. Or you can show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash batlisted. We aim to survive without paid-for advertising. Your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early, and for no more than the cost of a gently wilting rose, they get two extra lot listeds a month, our apartment overlooking the sea, where instead of the scents of flowers, we summon and celebrate the songs, films, TV shows and books which have seduced us in the previous week. Join us. The water's lovely. I would like to thank David and Wendy for just making this the most wonderful Brilliant. Uh, couple of weeks for me. And this has just turned my head upside down. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you both so much. Completely agree. Glorious. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
one of the most insane <laughs> podcasts that anyone has ever recorded. Yes! Oh, brilliant. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.